So we've been working with the four foundations of mindfulness as a frame of reference to support us in our inquiry together. The first foundation of mindfulness is the foundation of a reference point of the body, of bringing attention to sensations and posture of the body, uh, the elements of the body, the composite parts of the body, the movements of the body. And um, using that as a, as a framework for grounding, and then today in our insight dialogue practice, having that be the reference point that we kept returning to, you know, what's going on in our body? How is our body? Are we connected to our body? Are we not connected to our body? And, and seeing how that can be a support for just staying present with what's happening for ourselves and for another person in communication. The second foundation of mindfulness is the foundation of feeling pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And we can see that with each contact that we experience, whether it's a sight or a sound or a taste or a touch or a thought, there's an associated pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral component connected to it, which is conditioned. And so we can, we can see that, you know, this quality of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral arises depending on our previous associations with it. And there are some remarkable stories, some of them are quite funny, of people who are taking this and, and, and leveraging it a little bit. So I remember, I'm remembering a story of Manindraji, who was, who was Sharon and Joseph's uh, teacher, Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein's teacher, and Manindraji is a, was born in, in, um, in Bangladesh and emigrated to India. And in India, they have these sweets, which are sweeter than sugar. They're um, milk sugar, and they're just incredibly sweet. And Manindraji had a, had a kind of a, a, um, a thing for Bengali sweets. And so he'd been working with it, with his meditation practice, and trying to you know, get past his craving for these Bengali sweets. And then at one point he asked his brother to go buy him a pound of Bengali sweets. Well, a pound of Bengali sweets is an impossible amount of sweet. I mean, it's just, it's impossible, that amount of sweet. And he decided that he was going to sit down and very mindfully eat every single one of them. And by the end of the pound of Bengali sweets, then the idea of Bengali sweets no longer had a pleasant association. (laughs) So we can see that these things are highly conditioned. You know, it's extremely conditioned whether we experience something as pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And, you know, likewise, you know, if you see this, you know, for most people we'd associate it as a glass and probably it's neutral. You know, it's not a a piece of artwork. It's not, you know, disgusting. It doesn't stink. It's pretty neutral, you know. But if if you saw somebody take something like this and crack somebody's skull open with it, it wouldn't at all be neutral. It would be a highly charged experience to see this, okay? But the charged experience is not in the cup. It's in our association with the cup. And so part of what is, what is important to recognize, particularly when dealing with trauma responses, is, is that some of our perceptions is the, is the way things have cemented together. It's not actually in the trigger that's actually catalyzing the activation. Okay? So we can recognize something that you know, has an extremely unpleasant 
uh, feeling connected to it, we can begin to work it back and see what were the causes and conditions that gave rise to it. And the unpleasantness is not in the cup. It was the way the cup was used. And it was not the fault of the cup. It was the intention of the person using it. Okay? So when we begin to pull these things apart, we can have more leverage in being able to recognize when our triggers are actually something which is um, relevant or it's based on past conditioning. Now, if it's based on past conditioning, it doesn't mean that it's not relevant. It just means that if it's based on past conditioning, that our fear response is not actually appropriate or not an accurate response of what's happening in the present moment. And so when we can see that, then that gives us more capacity to work with it so that the fear responses that we have that are appropriate, we can respond to appropriately. And when we see a fear response that is arising as a result of a past trigger, we can respond to that appropriately as well. We need to be able to calm our nervous system down and and recognize that we're actually not in danger, that it actually isn't a, a threatening thing and that there's some memory that's being triggered based on something that happened in the past that is is causing this huge fear to arise, even though it's not, there isn't anything in the present moment that's actually that frightening. So the first noble, the first foundation is about body awareness, the second foundation is about feeling, the third foundation is about mind objects. And so when we can see all of these different associations related to the cup and the feelings that are connected to them, then we can begin to see that, you know, there's all these different things that are going on and our reactions to that, those are all mind objects. And then the fourth foundation of mindfulness is to understand things in terms of groupings of of Dhamma. And one of the groupings of Dhamma to look at is the Four Noble Truths. So within the fourth foundation of mindfulness is the Four Noble Truths. And so when we start to open up, well, what are the Four Noble Truths? We can see, you know, that there is, there's stress, there's suffering in this world. And, you know, certainly all of us sitting here over these days, you know, we've experienced times when our bodies haven't felt very peaceful and comfortable. You know, when our energies haven't been very bright, where our minds haven't been very bright. You know, where we've been sleepy and we've wanted to be energetic. And so on that level, we can experience the dukkha of having a body. You know, we can experience that. And and that isn't something that is personal. That's something that we all share. And so even though each of us will have different stories of illnesses and injuries and physical disabilities that we're dealing with, having a body is something that we all share. And the, the reality of having a body is something that we all share even though the particulars of it is going to be unique for each individual person. And so then we look at the the suffering that we experience with birth and the suffering that we experience with aging. You know, these things are are universal experiences. And the experience of death is not something that any of us have actually physically lived through yet. But it's something that each of us will. So one of the things about having a body is that it's born, it lives for a while, and then it dies. And that comes with the package. You don't have birth without death. And so, you know, in our own living circumstance, we have a time when we were born, and we know that. And we know there will be a time when we will die, but we don't know when that will be. And that's true for just about everyone. There's some rare exceptions to that, but mostly it's true for everyone. We don't know when we're going to die, but we can guarantee that that's for sure. That's definitely going to happen. But within the kind of physicality of being human and having a body, we also have these hearts that feel. And I was touched by the level of tenderness and tears that was expressed today when our afternoon insight dialogue, when we started to open up, you know, what does it feel like to be considering both the gratitude of the world that we're living in, that evoked tears, as well as the the grief and some anger 
and the overwhelm of, you know, the prospects of what happens if we might lose that, you know. What does that feel like? And so the, the human being as, a, as, a, as, a, as an entity can experience sorrow and grief at loss. Loss of something that is precious and something that is deeply appreciated. And so we can see that in our own lives, in our own experience, that when we focus in on suffering, we can focus in often on a cause of suffering. So when we're looking at the cause of suffering, when we're talking about physical pain or illness, often what we can see or we can, we can focus in on is, is the not wanting things to be a particular way. You know, that when we're tired, we don't want to be tired. When it aches, we don't want it to ache. When we're not feeling well, we don't want to not feel well. When we've got trauma responses that are merging, we don't want them to be merging. We want them to be released. And so we can notice that in having a body, having history, having conditioning, there can be responses to some of the things that arise. And when we focus attention in that particular way, where we're dialing into the wanting and the not wanting that's present related to the circumstances of what we're experiencing, that in that we can find a sense of release. But when we take this principle of the noble truth and then we apply it to the circumstances of the world that we're living in, we have very much similarities, but we also have some differences. The similarities is, is, is that when we look globally at what's going on in the world right now, we can definitely see the impact of suffering. I mean, it's pretty much obvious. And the news and the reports and the scientific studies are can be overwhelming because of the way in which a picture is painted that looks like, you know, the life as we know it. Um, If we continue on a similar trajectory within an absolutely astonishingly short period of time considering how long uh, human beings have been on this earth is going to change dramatically. And so, uh, you know, Confronted with information like that, the system can go into a, um, an overload. It doesn't know how to process that information. But when we take the Four Noble Truths and we use it as a way of focusing in on the problem and helping us come to understand the causes as well as delineate a path out, there are some things that we can use that are supportive. So, you know, the Buddha doesn't talk about suffering as something that is random. You know, suffering has causes. And when we're looking at the global circumstance of what we're dealing with, the causes are not random. The causes are often can be focused in on um, a proliferation of greed and aversion and ignorance. And, you know, one of the things when I was reading... Joanna Macy's book. I, I love this book. I, I, I recommend it. It's called Active Hope. How to Face the Mess We're In Without Going Crazy. And it was co-authored by Joanna Macy and Chris Johnstone. And when they were talking about like the kind of mess and how we got into this mess, you know, they pointed a lot to you know, Western society, North American culture and values. And they talked about the the ethos of the advertising agencies, which is sort of like the the baseline of our consumer-driven economy, okay? So, you know, this, this quote that I'm going to read from you comes from the advertiser's law, and it's the advertiser's law of dissatisfaction. And this was written on a website for advertisers, okay? The job of advertisers is to create dissatisfaction in its audience. If people are happy with how they look, they're not going to buy cosmetics or diet books. If people are happy with who they are, where their life, where they are in life and where they got, they just aren't customer potential. That is unless you make them unhappy. Most cosmetic advertisements feature beautiful women igniting the promise that you too can look like a drop-dead gorgeous model if only you use the product. 
This approach is based on showing an ideal that the audience will undoubtedly be unable to stack up against. The audience, after seeing what they could look like, is no longer happy with what they do look like, and now they are motivated to buy the promise of change. Okay, this is for real. This is what advertising is based on, okay? So, you know, people walk around with this deep-seated sense of not being good enough, of insufficiency, of fundamental sense of lack, and take it all entirely personally, that somehow they're fundamentally responsible for the fact that they feel this way, and, and confused as to how to go about changing it. And without seeing it in a context that our society has been designed upon creating this impression in order to create consumers, in order to create a consumer-driven economy, which creates the marketplace that supposedly keeps everything running. But one of the things that's just incredible is, is, is that our society now is wealthier than has ever been. We have used more resources in the last 50 years than the entire history preceding. I mean, that's a totally staggering piece of information. We've used more resource in the last 50 years than combined in the entire preceding history of life. And we are more dissatisfied now than ever. So having more doesn't make us happier, it makes us more neurotic. Because what is happening is, in addition to having more, is we've somehow bought hook, line, and sinker into the advertising ethos that there's something fundamentally wrong with us. Now, it's not just advertising. It actually is incipient in all kinds of different parts of our society. So this is playing on a deep-seated hunger that human beings have, wanting to feel okay and good enough and valued and appreciated and loved and like they belong. And it's doing it by instilling a sense of inadequacy and insufficiency and a sense of incompleteness. And it's been extraordinarily successful, you know? So we look at what's going on in a global picture and we see that greed and ignorance are features of what is causing our planet to be in the position that we're in. So that when we begin to see the cause, we also can see, well, all right, so if that's what's contributing to the madness that we're in, then moving out of that has got to be part of the equation of, the, of, of, of a different scenario which means that we need to both look at that on an individual level of how we've bought in and start moving across that, as well as start seeing, well, how can I actually gather together with a couple of other people who feel the same way and start doing that together as a group? You know, what does that look like? So when we are interested in wrapping this back now again with the for principles of generosity and integrity and renunciation, you know, the idea of renunciation, as I've mentioned before, is not an interest in creating people who are affectionate of austerity and deprivation. That's not the point. The point of austerity and renunciation is to be able to see what are the basic things that one needs is to have enough, you know? What's the basic things that one needs to have enough? And it's fascinating to me because, you know, I teach in different places, in different cultures, and I've traveled to different countries, and to see that in different cultures and in different countries, the idea of what is enough is absolutely different. So it's not a basic human thing, it's a basic cultural thing. Now, in England, up until 20 years ago, people did not have central heating. They had a little heater in one room or in two rooms, and that you'd huddle around that, and the place, the rest of the house, was freezing cold. And that was normal. Nobody complained about it. That was just normal. And what was fascinating to me was teaching retreats in England in the wintertime. And the winter in England is miserable. You know, because in addition to being incredibly cold, it's incredibly damp, and the cold penetrates to your bone marrow. It's miserable, bitter cold. It's terrible. 
And ladies who were in their 80s were out walking in this miserable, bitter, cold, every walking meditation. They wouldn't even consider staying inside to walk. It's like it's time to be outside and walk. That's what you do. So people's normal set standards of what was ordinary and common, the kind of physical discomfort that people were used to, was considerably different there in that cultural context than it is here in North America, where we've got centralized heating, we've got temperatures that we can crank up as large as we want, and, you know, it it feels uncomfortable if we've got too many sweaters on, you know, and that's sort of just normal, that's just normal that we keep the houses between 68 and 72 degrees, that's normal, you know. In another culture, it's totally not normal. So our cultural value has created a standard that is extraordinarily rare by world standards of what is considered normal. Yeah? And then as a result of that, any time we're having to touch an edge of that, so rather than 68, if it's 66, people think, oh, it's so cold in here. <laughs> but you see, we can work with these things because they're conditioned and not doing it from a place of freak out or panic or austerity, but, but simply as a way of saying, you know, we've gotten into this mess by a whole composite of conditions, part of which were genetic, were, were, we're specifically engineered so that we would be greater consumers in order to drive the engine of machines that I have no value in supporting. And they've, you know, they've grabbed me in ways that are like, really? You know, really? And so, you know, I too have to see that, you know, so like it comes Christmas time and I don't have presents to give every single member of my family and I go into a panic and it's like, why am I going into a panic? I'm not Christian, I'm Buddhist, I'm a nun, what is happening here? (laughs) And besides, I'm Jewish, exactly. Because the cultural value is, is that at Christmas time you're supposed to give gifts to everybody and if you don't give somebody a gift, there's something fundamentally insufficient about you as a human being. I mean, it's fabulous advertising strategy. But is that what I want to support? I don't think so. So, but in order to not support it, I have to wrestle with the feelings of what arises when I go against the tide. You know, that deep-seated gut feeling that there's something fundamentally wrong with me if I don't have presents for everybody at Christmas time. Until I can reflect and see, okay, what's happening here? Now, am I fundamentally insufficient? I don't think so. And is Christmas presents at Christmas time the only way that one can show one's affection or appreciation or value of other people? I don't think so. And so, you know, each of us are in a position where we can start to look at some of the kinds of like huge momentums of our society and say, well, is this really what I want to support or not? But because what we're up against is something that is so big, it's really helpful to do this in pairs and in family groups and in neighborhood groups and in sangha groups because what we're dealing with is bigger than any of us can navigate on our own. You know? What does it look like when people get together and share about their concerns as well as their envisioning of what is the world that we want to live in? You know? And I think one of the things that happens is, is that because we can touch into the fear, then fear just shuts our systems down. The fear and the grief and the overwhelm and the anger and the rage that we're dealing in this situation with. We've got government people who've let this kind of retarded policies continue and we're in this kind of a mess. You know. How did we get here? Well, we're here. <coughs> And so it's not something that we can just say, well, we need to let the government officials fix it because they're not fixing it fast enough. We have to step in and do what we can in order to begin to start turning the tide. So part of the problem is is that when we start opening this up, there's an awful lot there. It takes skillfulness to handle it so that our systems are not fried by the overwhelm of what is there.
the level of, of grief or sadness or, uh, or feeling hopeless or helpless or feeling yeah, impotent. And so it takes skillfulness to hold all of that and breathe through it and let that be the opportunity to say, don't stop there, don't stop there. That's not the place to stop. That's a place that we open up and explore, but that's not the place to stop. And then to create a context where we can start opening up our creativity and our love and our passion for the world our compassion for the suffering of the world. And then from that place, begin to start envisioning what kind of world do we want to live in? What does it look like? Is it based on this insane value system that's driven by consumer, you know, the advertising industry is deciding how our life is? You know, really? I don't think so. You know, it has no value of anything that makes any sense to me. So when we step back and start thinking, okay, so what does make sense to me? You know, what does make sense to me? And get clear about what makes sense to me and start sharing that with other people so that together you can come together with what makes sense to you. What does it look like? And then when we envision, we don't have to be logical and rational and have all the steps figured out. We can just be creative. But the problem is, is that in order to be creative, we have to open up our juice. We have to unplug the clogs. We have to unbend the pipes. We've got to thaw the frozen hoses so that it flows. Because the advertising industry doesn't allow us to be creative. I mean, what a disaster that would be and imagine and create a world that we want to live in. You know, so we have to actually connect with a life force that is not tethered in to the kind of cultural values that have been conditioned in us and and reinforced and supported by some of these institutions that are not interested in health and well-being for us or for the whole world. They're interested in money for their own pockets. And yet when we open this stuff up and start envisioning, what does it look like? What kind of world do we want to be in? What does that look like? How does that feel? What kinds of things happen? What kinds of things don't happen? Is there a totalitarian regime that says you get to live and you get to die? Or is there some other system operating? You know, do the furry people live and the winged people die? I mean, it's like, how is it working? And so when we open up and just start imagining, envisioning, and just starting to create or allow just the idea of what a healthy world might be, and then come back to basics. Well, where are we? And what are a couple of concrete steps that we can move in that direction? We don't have to figure it all out. We don't have to solve all the problems, but we can begin to engage in a way where what we really love and want and envision can be actually something that we're living our life from. Not in isolation as one trying to do this all by ourselves, but in community with other people who feel the same. So the Four Noble Truths talks about suffering. It talks about a cause of suffering. And when we're dealing with this, the causes are not personal. And yet there is a personal element to it in the way in which we have bought in to the consumer-driven values of our society. And whether that's through a sense of shame or through a sense of insufficiency or a sense of, of entitlement... The degree to which we have bought in is a degree to which we are perpetuating the problems that we don't want to be perpetuating. So any of us who are able to look at that and say the efforts that I make to live simply, to turn the thermostat down, to recycle, to not have 25 pairs of shoes... is an effort of moving against the current 
of what we have been conditioned to believe is going to be the answer to our sense of inadequacy and insufficiency. And as we connect with that and feel the fullness of what it is to live with gratitude and joy and express that, and let that nourish us, then that also gives us the energy to stay connected and engaged in something which is not easy. This is not easy doing this work. It's not easy personally doing this work, and it's certainly not easy getting involved in this kind of global situation that we're in right now and beginning to find ways in which we can coalesce together and move across the tide. It isn't easy, but it is magnificent. And then to see the many, 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 many different expressions of these things that are happening all over the place with people who are interested in doing the same thing. 350.org is an organization that Bill McGibbon and some uh, grad students started, I don't remember how many years ago. And, you know, Bill McGibbon wrote a book, I think 20 or 25 years ago, that was talking about the trajectory of what was happening in the earth and that we basically needed to change tax extremely urgently, otherwise we were going to be into a really bad, bad situation. And people didn't listen. And, you know, most of the things that were raised as concerns have been coming true. And so, you know, what he decided and his grad students decided is, is, is that they needed a global movement. You know, this is not about households recycling, you know. This is about, not about countries getting on with a new program. This is about a whole world changing gears and moving in a consolidated, cohesive direction towards uh, core values that supports life being sustainable as we know it on this planet. You know, this is not a small thing. So they had seven graduate students, and so they broke it up into seven continents. Each grad student was to organize a continent, and one who was in Antarctica was the one person who was designing the web thing to pull this together. So they said, let's go for it. And they went for it. And so, you know, they've been doing global actions ever since. And there was one, one action where they decided that they were going to all, as much as they could, have global actions all across the world. And they had photographs, unbelievable photographs of tribal people in, in obscure places all over the planet doing actions to acknowledge their solidarity with the fact that they didn't want the world moving in the direction that it has been and they were interested in creating another way. You know? So you have people in tribal gear and tribal dress in obscure places of the planet and not one or two photographs, but like 20,000 photographs of people all over the planet who are gathering together saying, it's not acceptable to be going in the direction that we have been going. We need to have another direction. And so 350 is, uh, is, the, is the name of the organization. And some moms got 350 t-shirts for their babies. And so they had this photograph of like six-month-old babies with 350 t-shirts. And that's a photograph of like... 15 babies with 350 shirts kind of propped up on each other. (laughs) And it's actually quite telling because, you know, if we don't sort this out, what kind of future do these children have, you know? What's What's going to be there for them if we don't actually make inroads into changing this stuff, you know? So there's the Four Noble Truths that talk about suffering. It talks about it personally and how we need to respond to it. There's suffering, there's a cause of suffering, there's a cessation of suffering, and there's a path that leads to the cessation of suffering. The same core teachings can be applied to this global conundrum that we're all dealing with. And one of the things that's the first 
principle of the first noble truth is, is that suffering has to be seen. It doesn't help it to ignore it. It doesn't give us any more capacity to deal with it if we have no capacity to recognize what's going on. When we start looking at the causes of suffering, you know, the political situation in the world is complicated. But when we look closely, we can see that, you know, what's been happening is is, is that greed has been driving our economy. And it's fundamentally based on the wrong understanding. It's not based on the understanding that we are part of a web of life. It's based on the understanding that as individuals we are separate and we have power and dominion over our own lives. And that is true to a very, very, very limited extent. If the food supply is not as abundant as we now have it, it's going to cause absolute pandemonium. So yes, we have individual choice, but we are also connected to a whole web of life. And if the trees die, they're not sequestering the carbon, they're not generating oxygen, the atmosphere heats up, it's going to affect life as we know it. There's many, many different living systems that are intertwined and interconnected. It's absolute arrogance to presume that we exist as independent and autonomous to the web of life. It's arrogant, it's not correct, and it's unbelievably lonely. That somehow, by ourselves, we have to become sufficient and self-sufficient and able to take care of everything. And we don't feel the support of the trees. We don't feel the support of the earth. We don't feel the food, the way it nourishes us. We don't feel the way that the birds open up our hearts and bring us uh, an inspiration. We don't see what happens with the flowers blooming in the springtime because we've taken ourselves to be separate. We're not present to the reality of what is. And then battle, trying to find how we cannot feel so desperately lonely. Well, the loneliness is a feature of not being part of a web of life. And when we feel ourselves as a part of a web of life, there is no such thing as being lonely. Everything is in relationship with us. The air and the water and the soil and the birds and the creatures. It all is there. Meeting us and greeting us and responding to us. Touching us. Nourishing us. Receiving us. Co-creating the moment with us. So the personal sense of loneliness an anxiety that many people feel is not a personal problem. It's a systemic problem as a result of the way that our life has consolidated around certain values that are not in accordance with fundamental truths. And if we try and resolve a systemic problem personally, we feel completely overwhelmed. Now, one of the things that happened to me when I was living in Australia was very interesting to me because I'd never experienced anything like it before. I had been living in England for 10 years and for a whole variety of reasons, one of which was the miserable winters, which extend into spring and to autumn and to fall. 
you know, the damp weather. You know, my, I was born in Southern California. I was born in a desert climate. So to be in that kind of damp weather, I was like not a happy bear. For five years, I was dreaming about being in the desert. So I ended up going to Australia, you know, to see if that would be a helpful place for me to be for a while and my health could recover. And where I was was in a place that had been Aboriginal land. Well, all of Australia had been Aboriginal land. And in a a period of 17 years or so, uh, uh, people that had been indigenous to that area for 40,000 years were effectively wiped out. And in addition, there was uh, the road that that was built into this property was built by uh, slave labor. It was, uh, I don't know who they were. Anyway, it wasn't a happy situation on some level. So right underneath the surface of the land, the land was beautiful. It was absolutely gorgeous. was this agitation. And there was a period of time when I was just feeling unbelievably anxious. You know, just absolutely out of my skin anxious. And I was trying to resolve it personally. Because that's my conditioning. If something's arising, it's personal and I need to resolve it personally. You know, I didn't have any kind of other framework that would give me another way of looking at things. Well, that property was connected to an Aboriginal elder. I don't remember the reason why we had invited him to come, but we invited him to come and we invited him to come and he was going to do some ceremony with us and the land. And we did some ceremony. And one of the things that was fascinating to me was the fact that he picked up, and so did others who were part of the ceremony, the fact that there was this anxiety that was present in the land. It was present in the land. And after the ceremony, the anxiety in the land shifted, and to my absolute astonishment, my own personal anxiety shifted. So what I had taken as being entirely personal was not personal. It was related to the land. Because I wasn't trained in looking at it that way, and I didn't have any kind of frame of reference to think of it that way, or ways of responding it to that way, all I knew was what I could deal with, which was that if it was arising within me, it was because it was arising as a result of me. It was me. And so that was like a really big window for me to recognize, well, it's not always the way it appears. And there are frames of reference that are beyond my conditioning or my education or the what I know. And yet when the Aboriginal elder came in and did some healing ceremony, it had a huge impact. So the kind of anxiety that I was dealing with was like, I was absolutely shaking in my shoes. You know, I was coming down for the meal offering and I'd go back up to my little cabin and I would just say, you know... Give me the strength to get through another day. It was like I was beside myself. And when it shifted, it was like it's gone. It's not an issue. So some of the stuff that we're taking personally is not personal. And because we're trying to resolve it personally, it's really not so easy to resolve. And that's part of the reason why in community we have maybe a little bit better chance of having different perspective of what's going on so that we can hold things in a frame that's actually a little bit bigger. So there's suffering, there's the cause of suffering, there's the cessation of suffering, and there's the path that leads to the cessation of suffering. If greed... The fundamental confusion that we are not part of a web of life in some sense that ill will is a value that should be acted on, is the cause of the mess we're in, then the opposite of those is going to be the way out. So the way out of greed is gratitude, contentment, reflecting on what are basic needs, is it good enough? The way out of ill will is metta, is compassion. And the way out of ignorance, seeing that we are fundamentally alone and on our own in order to figure it all out, is to begin to feel the potency of the web of life that we are part of. 
regularly. When we walk, when we eat, when we drink a glass of water, when we flush the toilet, when we look up at the sky, when we hear the sound of the birds, when we feel the wind in our face, when we breathe and recognize that every single living being that has ever existed has also breathed, will also breathe. We put ourselves in a web of life. And the path that leads to the end of suffering is the path that combines the right view that understands these fundamental principles, right thought, which looks at what is it that we need to consider and have, what are the things that we can give up, what are the things that we need to treasure, right action that considers what do we actually do with our body and our speech in terms of the way that we live and interact and spend time with each other, right livelihood, right speech, right concentration. How is it that we are focusing our mind so that we're not caught in any of the mad things that are going on? That we actually drop in and nourish and rest and renew. Right mindfulness. That we see clearly what is going on and how to respond to it. When I saw those pictures from people from all over the world who were interested in finding another way, when I'm on conference calls with other Dhamma teachers who are interested in consolidating around climate change and what we can do as religious leaders, when I hear of organizations that are coming together and people that are coming together and transition organizations that are looking at moving off of fossil fuel reliance and seed banks and people who are studying and teaching permaculture design and people who are engaged in various different ways of thinking about how we can move out of the problems and work towards solutions. I feel really a sense of tremendous enthusiasm and a lot of hope. It isn't just a matter of one or two or three or four or five hundred. There are millions of people all over the world who are concerned about the same thing. And what I have found is is that I don't have the capacity to do all the research myself. And I don't have the capacity to process all of this stuff myself. It's helpful for me to engage with other people around this. It's too big for me to do by myself. But when I speak with others who are also engaged and also interested and also processing, it's just amazing the kinds of things that can emerge with people who are interested in a similar way. Very inspiring. So I live in Colorado Springs, and Colorado Springs is the home of the, of, the, of the national headquarters of the religious right. And one of the leaders of the religious right, I can't remember his name, but he's got a radio show, and two million people listen to his radio show. So I thought, you know, I should go meet him and find out if there's a way in which we can find some commonality about the fact that we live on one planet together that he also would be interested in getting engaged and having his constituents get engaged. So I thought, I don't know anything about the fundamentalist Christian people. You know, what do we, what do you, how do you do that? So I was on a conference call with the Dharma teachers and I said, listen, you know, I live in Colorado Springs and this seems like a really wonderful resource. So one person said, well, I grew up with fundamentalist Baptists. I know all about them. And somebody else says, well, you know, I've got somebody who's been organizing with the people who are the 
the fundamentalist, evangelicalist Christians. I'll put you in contact so that you can figure out a good strategy that would work. So I didn't have all the answers, but I had a sense that meeting this person and having a conversation with him would be an opening. It would be worth exploring. And with that sense and the willingness to deal with the discomfort of being in a situation that had so much uncertainty in it, I, I said, all I said was, I see this as a possibility. And immediately, there was immediate response with people who had information and resources that I didn't have that would be able to help bridge and give me the confidence and the support that I needed in order to make the next step, which is to, okay, so if I call this person up, you know, what kind of things would I want to say to them? How would that conversation look like? And I find that all the time, that when there is just the willingness to bring forward the heart of good intention, then it is met with other people who've got the resources that you lack, that give you the next step of courage to take the next step. You know, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't envision how it's all going to work out. But what I do know is that when I live with that kind of clarity, acting on positive intention, working with the fear, not letting the fear drive me or prevent me from doing things that feel like the right thing to do, my life feels full. The kind of interactions that I have with people are enriching. I feel connected. I don't feel alone. And I feel like I'm giving everything that I can to something that really means a lot to me. So we've had a weekend together to drop in. It coincides very close to Earth Day. We're living in a place that's of spectacular natural beauty. We've had a chance to touch and to share, to open, and to hold some of these things inwardly. And I just plant these seeds about just not leaving it here, taking it one step further. What does that look like for you? In your personal life, in your family, in your sangha, what does that look like? Professional life, what does it look like? I'm going to leave these reflections here for now. 